Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where I also serve as professor of psychology and epidemiology and public health. Uh, the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity attempts to bring together science and public policy in ways that can move the nutrition agenda forward. And we're delighted to have very special guests come through the Rudd Center, and today's guest is no exception. I'm happy to introduce Tomas Horvath, who is chair of the section of comparative medicine and professor of comparative medicine, neurobiology, and obstetrics and gynecology at the Yale University School of Medicine. Tomas has had a long history of doing very interesting research, a well-funded investigator with collaborators around the world. And among his interests are the homeostasis of feeding and body weight regulation and how they apply to issues like obesity and diabetes. So his very fine work was presented at the Rudd Center today, and I'm delighted to bring you this podcast to talk with Tomas about his work. So welcome. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the concept of homeostasis. Uh, it's a pretty basic concept, but not everybody may have heard of it in the context of obesity. And what, what does the concept mean, and how does it apply? So the way we approach homeostasis is uh, to, to consider the entire uh, individual subject as a uh, composites of uh, different tissues and how those tissues need to function properly in order to uh, have that uh, subject to survive. So basically we consider homeostasis in that, from that perspective, any, any aspect of maintenance of appropriate tissue function in the periphery and the brain would consider uh, to be part of that homeostatic uh, uh, entity. Okay, so um, um, part of this concept, as I gather, is that you have the the body of a number of intersecting parts, interactive parts, and when, when you do things to one part of the brain, it affects others, and you're, you think especially about how things outside the brain interact with the brain in order to deal with body weight. Is that right? That is correct, but, but again, here we have a different view in a little bit, and that is that we see the brain as a sort of outgrowth of the rest of the body, and that is that we, we believe that the brain emerged and became more sophisticated to, to coordinate the activity of, of the various tissues uh, in, in, a, in a subject altogether so that the individual can survive. So from that perspective, we, we, we consider the periphery and the brain as, as, as one entity. And from that, we also conclude, therefore, that there must be a continuous interaction between the periphery and the brain back and forth to have the appropriate uh, functioning of the system. Okay. So explain to me, if you will, your thoughts on how the, the body changes in response to a challenging nutrition environment. So as a nutrition environment changes in, in the U.S. and around the country where people have abundant access to food, things like sugar, fat, and salt go up in concentration in the diet, how does the body respond to this? So the body obviously is, is well suited to actually address those kind of uh, uh, environmental changes. And, and, and they do respond by changing uh, mineral content of the, of, the blood, uh, of the blood, partially by uh, the functioning of the kidney. They, they change the, the, the nutrient environment by uh, burning more calories or retaining more calories in the form of adipose tissue. You can actually push the system uh, far enough, nevertheless it will maintain a sort of set point or, or a set body uh, weight and body adiposity. But if you over, 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 overstress the system by continuous uh, uh, incoming uh, energies and, and, and calories, then uh, step by step, uh, minute by minute, you're going to be shifting this set point and you reestablish a new set point, which will come with increased adiposity and, and decreased uh, expenditure. 
Okay. Now, one thing that you've done a great deal of work on is synaptic plasticity. Can you explain what that concept means and how the work relates to body weight and eating? So we, we believe, and I think it's not only our belief, that, that the brain retains a, a, a large uh, uh, amount of plasticity even after uh, childhood and adulthood. And that is a way how the brain responds to the shifting uh, uh, environmental uh, cues. So, for example, if you increase your intake of, of uh, carbohydrates, you will be increasing uh, aspects of a brain function that increases expenditure and decreases appetite. But one way how the system adapts to these uh, changes is rearranging the connectivity between different circuits. And of course, it makes perfect sense when it occurs in areas of the brain that are responsible for feeding regulation of energy expenditure regulation. But we are finding more and more that actually these sort of rearrangement of circuits is not only uh, 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 present in these uh, homeostatic regions of the brain, but also they are present in higher brain regions such as the hippocampus and cortex. So that with metabolic cues, you can rearrange the connection uh, between neuronal circuits of various parts of the brain. Okay, so the brain, the brain is responding and, and the periphery is responding to things the environment does to the individual. That is and correct. so you get this interaction then between the environment and the that body. Is correct. That, that, so anytime you change the environment with anything, any intervention, you will be changing connectivity in the brain. That is our uh, basic uh, message. And one question I asked you at your lecture that um, on an issue that I find fascinating is whether the, the changes that you get in synaptic plasticity or other biological changes when as a person gains weight, what happens then to their offspring? And do these things get passed along from generation to generation? So for example, if you have an obese mother who might be that way because of a bad food environment or physical inactivity or whatever, then is she likely to create different offspring than if she were the same biological person but thinner? That is correct. We, we do believe that is the case. I think in models, both the animal models and the human experience suggests that that is the case. Uh, the, the hormonal environment that the developing embryo and fetus is exposed to is a major determinant of how the brain circuitry that regulates food intake and energy expenditure is shaping up. So despite of genetic backgrounds, you can definitely skew the, the metabolic regulation of, of the offspring by a pregnancy that is associated with, with uh, obesity or diabetes, or for that matter, food uh, 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 types that are skewing the whole uh, machinery. When, when you mentioned that earlier, I, it made me think about the importance of prevention because what you'd find with obesity is if it gets produced for whatever reason, I mean we happen to think the environment is a major player, but for whatever reason it gets produced, then the likelihood of the offspring uh, being overweight goes up not only because of the shared environment they have with an overweight parent, but because of the biology that they've inherited. And then you'd get this sort of multiplicative function as you go along with each generation creating more and more likelihood of obese offspring. Does that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense. And, and you mentioned the word pre prevention. And I think uh, the key is prevention in order to shift this uh, trend in, in obesity and metabolic disorders. Unfortunately, however, I think the culture and the environment that we live in does not promote real uh, prevention because uh, the money is not in the prevention. The money is in the pharmaceutical industry in, in, in addressing already developed disorders, in, which, is, which is fine and in, in most disorders I think is reasonable. It, it is, I think, a little bit less straightforward in the case of obesity and, and metabolic disorders because to, to anticipate that a single 
chemical ent- entity can address this very complicated disorder is, 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 is not reasonable, I think. I certainly agree with that. Um, changing the environment appears to be a pretty daunting prospect given how many bad influences there are, but on the other hand, it's a very important driver of the obesity problem, so something that's important to work on. And I'm thinking that the work that you do um, with animal models primarily is very instructive in this regard because it does show us what happens once obesity gets established and how the body changes in order to make it very difficult, A, to lose weight, and then more likely that you're going to pass it on to offspring. That's correct. That's, that's very correct. And I think, although, of course, we are trying to do and we're doing this research to try to find a way to address the issue of obesity, I'll be honest with you, the more we learn, the more we tend to agree with the idea of prevention because the complexity of the system is such that, again, to anticipate that classical uh, pharmacological approaches would be useful is, is not, you know, reasonable. If, hypothetically, if you had some, uh, a person who was overweight who was going to have a child, and then that person loses weight before they become pregnant and they're thin during the pregnancy and afterwards, will their child inherit a different biology because that parent was overweight, or is it really a matter of the weight status at the time the pregnancy occurs? You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say it's the weight status. I would emphasize the circulating uh, uh, hormones and circulating nutrients that, that provide the communication between the, the, the mother and, and the, the embryo. So adiposity, weight, is less, in my view, the key than to make sure that hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia, and, and such uh, uh, changes that are usually associated with diabetes or obesity are not manifested in, in, in the person. So it's less about weight and less about uh, adiposity. It's more about what's in the blood of the, 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 the woman and how that, that is being communicated to the developing child. Okay, that makes sense. You mentioned um, a term in your talk, set point. And the whole concept has been around for many years and got its early start in the weight area around animal studies that found that animals would defend their weight if they were overfed and then they would come back down when given ad lib access to food and the like. What do you think that is the value or, or lack of value of that concept currently? And do you think it really applies to humans and their body weight? I think it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting concept and I think definitely for what we use it, it makes sense. It's the same way as the, you need oxygen, how much oxygen you need, and, and there is a set point for that as well. So it makes sense that we have some sort of a, at least a, a range, uh, we have a very optimal range in which we, we, we function the best and with the least uh, energy. Uh, and, and, and that, I, I agree with the basic concept, and I think that it's basically determined by how the communication between various tissues and the brain emerges and how within the brain the certain circuits emerge to navigate and respond to environmental cues and alter behavior and, and peripheral tissue function. So in a way, it's a, it's, I think it's a term that is reasonable to use. It makes sense to, to emphasize what it's all about, but uh, it's difficult to really put your finger on what it is. It is. An, it's a very interesting concept. The idea yeah. that your your body weight is re- or your eating, for that matter, is regulated like a thermostat regulates the temperature in a home. And when when the temperature gets too low, low the thermostat or the set point yes. regulates it back up. So that's the basic concept, yeah, which yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, which is very interesting here. And and since since the, the 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 engineering concept that you're using is coming from the human, 
of course, it's it's. Uh, I think it's downstream to our own set points that we we have in our own body, but that's more of a philosophical, you know. So I've heard people that. speculate that that the body is pretty good at regulating uh, until the environment becomes so unusual, and that under normal circumstances in which humans and animal evolved, humans and animals evolved where there are only a certain restricted range of foods available and the body recognizes these things as food because it's biologically programmed to do so. But in the modern environment, then things work fine under those circumstances and body weight regulation remains fairly normal within this restricted range. But then when you introduce a foreign environment, processed foods, foods extremely high in sugar, fat, uh, foods that are very palatable compared to what's available in the natural environment, then the whole regulation of body weight falls apart. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, especially when you consider that not only that the environment change, which is absolutely changed, it's completely uh, went in the wrong direction, uh, the, the food environment. The same time, the way we live is completely different also. So the way we work, what our jobs, what we do, what do we do in our jobs is completely different also. It's, it's a, a less physical and most of the time, most of the people don't do physical jobs. They, they do uh, office jobs, they're sitting in a chair, they, it's less physically involving. Which again, I think, is is pushing us to more and more to those uh, uh, available foods because we have no other things to do, but then uh, physically, but to to um, you know think about our food, what we're we gonna have for lunch, what we're we gonna have between the lunch, and I think it's a combination of the the the, the coincidence of the bad coincidence or the unfortunate coincidence of the availability of of of, of bad foods and our ability to be able to focus on the availability of those uh, bad foods. I know you have an interest in uh, the relationship between eating, body weight, and sleep. Can you explain a little bit about how those things might be tied together? So there is an emerging uh, concept that sleep, and it's not an emerging concept, I think it's an old concept that sleep is very important. For a long time, sleep was considered as a sort of a waste of time, and uh, people were trying to find ways to sleep uh, uh, the least amount and therefore have more active uh, phase in, in our day, daily life. But, but it appears that, that sleeping has a major uh, impact in how uh, neurons, uh, cells, uh, in the brain specifically, actually sleep uh, speaks mainly to the brain and less on the peripheral tissues, how neurons have to uh, rejuvenate uh, after uh, increased workload. And in the absence of, of, of sleep, they're unable to really rejuvenate from one day to the other. And, and the consequence of that is that they, because of, partially because of overworking, uh, uh, they will not be able to respond properly to metabolic cues. When they receive the signal that, okay, now you can stop eating, all of a sudden they're not responding to, to, to that cue and they still in the, in the uh, mood of, of, of hunger and, and, and then seeking food together with the very simple fact that you eat when you are awake. So by def definition, in the absence of sleeping, you have more active phase in which you can exploit those kind of foods that you refer to. And that just adds to the, 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 this, this uh, vicious uh, cycle of gaining weight, st stressful life, not sleeping, and uh, that is a complicating factor that is, is, is a very, very important contributor in my view of the maintenance of uh, and, and, and prolongation of uh, the epidemic. So there's been some speculation about these changes in people's day-to-day -day environment that may not think affect weight but really do, and you've mentioned sleep as an example, and I know you have an interest in body temperature regulation and how that might 
affect what people weigh and what they eat. Explain a little bit about that. So again, I think that, that that's part of the environment that I referred to, and you mentioned how the environment has changed besides and having this uh, food availability uh, uh, on the side. So, so for, for, for centuries, obviously, to control the, the environment, the temperature, especially in, in regions where really very four seasons was, was very difficult and was, was not perfect. But by the introduction of ways of uh, uh, changing the environmental temperature by, by central heating, by central air conditioning, we shifted our ambient temperature and, and the way the human body responds to the ambient temperature plays a major role in how you also regulate food intake and how you also regulate energy expenditure. So, so the same pathways in the brain that sense uh, peripheral temperature are also involved in the regulation of, of feeding. So by interfering with that uh, environmental uh, input, you by definition or by default also can interfere with the metabolic uh, uh, pathways and metabolic phenotypes of, of, of the humans. So to the extent that this relationship exists between temperature regulation and body weight, you could attribute it to no more than the body has to expend energy. It has to work to keep its core temperature stable if the ambient temperature is high or low. Or lower, exactly, either but, way. But it sounds from what you're saying that there's more to it than just the calorie expenditure there's more because to it, of the work, because of these I agree. connections of the pathways. There is, there is more to that. Because of the pathways are connected, interconnected, at the level of the brain, although obviously what you mentioned that the calorie uh, uh, burning and retention is an important component, because they use the same pathways, in the same time when they're sensing temperature and they adjust to that temperature, they're also going to be changing appetite, they're also going to be changing the energy expenditure component of, of the central uh, regulatory system. Can you help explain through the animal work that you and others do why humans, once they're overweight, have such a hard time losing weight? I know you can't explain it entirely because then, <laughs> if could, then, then of course, you'd have a drug and, you know, everything yeah, would yeah, be yeah. fine. But, but it, it's such a fascinating issue because clinically we see this all the time. People are overweight. They do basically anything to lose weight. There are studies now saying that people would give, they go to prison if, if it would mean losing weight or they would lose, they would give up a limb, all sorts of interesting things. So people are highly motivated. And when you talk to people who do lose weight, they tend to be completely secure that they're never going to gain it back. But in fact, most everybody does. So there's, there are heavy incentives for people to lose weight, enormous gratification for people when they achieve the lower weight, but yet they go back. What is it? Do so, you think that might uh, make you know, it so they, they don't want to be repeating, I don't want to be repeating ourselves, but you mentioned set points. So I think partially because of genetics, partially because of uh, in uterine environment, partially the way you grew up as a child from birth on to, I think, early adolescence, you establish your base set point of how the system responds to uh, environment. And, and once that is established, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to shift that downward upward, you can always shift. And again, if you consider how the system is put together, it's always put, it, it, it's always emphasizing the food-seeking aspect of behavior and, and, and endocrinology for a simple reason of survival. So that's not surprising. But once you, again, shift uh, the, the, the set point to, to that level to come back, you know, if you consider evolutionary components of this thing, makes no sense. It, it's better to be pushing it that way than pushing it the other way around because pushing it the other way around, you're 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 going to um, anorexia and going to no intake, which is nonsensical from the perspective of a, of a of a living individual or living subject. Uh, 
And, and I think that we do have those morphological limits in our brain uh, and, and neurobiological limits that you cannot uh, step over. So if, if you want to try to lose weight, you're going against a hardwired brain, which is, which is uh, very, very difficult to fight. So you can temporarily, you can win over it, but, but it's going to come back and pop back to, the, to, the, to its previous uh, uh, stage. So I think, again, if we consider what's the purpose of eating and what's the purpose of storing energy, it makes sense that, that, that our overall uh, body is, is, uh, is biased in that direction. So a couple of things that you say make perfect sense to me, but I still have one remaining question from it. It, it makes sense to me that the body is going to make errors in the regulation of body weight. It makes sense to make errors in the upward direction because then you have body fat stored and you survive the famine, and that's better than being starved. That so that makes sense. It, it also makes sense that the body would fiercely defend some critical mass of body fat or body weight or whatever it is because if you go lower than that, you're going to starve and you're going to die. Okay, but what doesn't, what doesn't make so much sense to me is when a person gains a lot of weight, that why would a new set point be established at that higher weight? Why, when the person wants to diet and lose weight, they couldn't just lose weight? And the defense doesn't kick in until a very low weight, where then the body energy stores are really being threatened. So let's just take a, you know, a hypothetical woman, and her body is going to really feel threatened by starvation if she goes below 110 pounds. So if she's 180 pounds, why would the body start to feel threatened when she starts dieting then, rather than when she gets down to the 110? So, so this is a very, very interesting question. Obviously, I can't tell you that there's no answer from me to you, and nobody can answer you that question right now. But we are actually, and others are also obviously, working on this very, very issue. How can you upward shift a uh, set point, but you cannot really downward shift the, the set point? We think, and we are pursuing that right now in, in, in our laboratory and in collaboration with Rudy Leibel. I don't know if you know yes. Rudy. He has the same interest. We have the same interest. And we think that, that actually it will be c coming back again how the brain center utilizes fuel, carbohydrate versus fatty acids, and how the consequence of that may be you, will lose, you can lose easily neurons, it's a hypothesis, so you have to take it with some grain of salt here. If you are in the gaining mode, you are actually in that, in that, in that phase, you might be impairing or killing cells which are responsible for satiety. So if you do that, then by definition, you are sh shifting the set point. And since those cells are gone for good, you know, to regrow them, you can, you know, in the, in the time of stem cells and, and adult neurogenesis, you can think of that, but it's very difficult to come back. Versus if you're going downward, if you are shifting down your, your fasting, you're actually providing an environment which is very supportive for cellular survival. So while, while you're downward, sh you're, you're fasting, you're in a chronic negative energy balance, you're actually protecting the entire entity of the hypothalamic center. And therefore, when you stop that, you just bounce back like nothing happened. So we think that there is that sort of a component to that, which, which uh, makes it, again, very difficult to, to reverse uh, once you shift it in upward. Well, you, you have a much more sophisticated explanation of it than I did, which, which I find fascinating. I thought that 
maybe in under normal circumstances as humans were evolving that the range in body weight was really pretty small and so body weight became irrelevant to to triggering the defense and it was really calorie deprivation or food deprivation that triggers this so if that were the case then that would kick in at whatever body weight a person was at because the the body would say okay I'm being threatened now because you're dieting yeah. that is you're starving me and I need to defend myself any way I possibly can and that could happen at, at any body weight but but your idea is which I find absolutely fascinating that during those periods of weight gain that something is happening in the brain to destroy the satiety mechanism that then that would that that, that's what we, that's our working hypothesis and I think based on biochemistry and cell biology makes sense we need to see if it really is happening Absolutely fascinating. How optimistic, let's end with this question. How optimistic are you that there will be, ever be drugs that will make a substantial impact on helping people regulate their body, body weight? I mean, given now that there are commercial drugs available, but they produce modest weight losses, and when people go off them, for the most part, they tend to regain the weight. Do you think that there's any hope on the horizon that this, drugs will come along that would be of much help? It's a very, very good question. Of course, the answer is that, uh, I mean, my answer is that I, I wish it was the case. Of course, we're all hoping and wishing for magic bullets in various issues. I think to, to put uh, all the eggs in that basket is, is really unreasonable. And I think uh, besides prevention, I think education, I, I, I would argue that probably should play a bigger role in our in our way of fighting this than... than the hope, then, then the hope that, that magic bullets will emerge. So I would suggest that magic bullets will not emerge in the, in the generation that we live in or in the next generation. And, and we should think out of the box how to approach this uh, issue. So why not be more hopeful about drugs? I mean, I, I share your belief. I think that the environment is so overwhelming that you're simply not going to find a drug that will undo that damage. But, but from the other point of view, why can't somebody just come across the signal or the part of the body that's... Because the there is no the signal, that's the thing. Okay. There are signals, there are multiple signals. So you will always find, as it's been the case with almost all medications that are available, you have side effects and metabolic side effects. In some medications you lose weight, in some medications you gain weight. So you already have actually a lot of things that alter metabolism. You can pull them together and say, in fact, there are companies who are taking drugs that are off the market for various uh, psychiatric disorders but they had side effects on, uh, on, on, on losing weight, and they're trying to combine them and manipulate them so that their main uh, effect will be on the body weight and not on the psychiatric uh, side. So you will find, and you will have drugs, but, but in the long run, I don't think that will address the issue of uh, uh, the obesity epidemic, if, if, if you wish to call it that way. You know, one, one thing that's interesting is you, you and I come at this issue from much different perspectives, us from nutrition and public policy and you from basic animal physiology work. But we both agree that prevention becomes very important. Absolutely. Um, you know, no we, we, we see that. it because we know how hard it is for people to lose weight. And you see it because of the biological changes that get produced once an organism is overweight. That is correct. The, the, the problem with the prevention that it's, it's, it's not sexy from a perspective of obviously the money, money and the pharmaceutical industry is not interested in that. NIH is interested in that, but the resources that they probably have is, is insufficient to really 
push it forward in that direction for the moment, but it probably will change. Well, thank you, Tomas, for joining us in this webcast. It really is wonderful to hear about your work. Thank you very much for having me. So again, I thank Tomas Horbath, Chair of the Section of Pr Comparative Medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine, and a highly recognized researcher for his innovative work on the regulation of body weight. I invite you to visit the Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of uh, many other excellent webcasts, just like the one we had today, and a lot of other information on nutrition and public policy and obesity. Thank you, and I look forward to the next time we meet.